House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. Of course, I'm Al Warren, and Mr. Dave Martino is back from his live karate. <laughs> live karate. <laughs> So live Marshall, live Marshall, live, it looks live. Like live Marshall. Yeah, that's why live or live. Death. I was thinking Marshall. live like live Tyler. Well, that's spelled differently. <laughs> that's right. I've, and you're yeah. a writer. Come on. Yeah. Live Tyler. I, yeah, I thought of that. I thought, well, that's how people would know. You're giving away your age too. Live Tyler's not the, well, not the kid star anymore, right? Yeah. She's probably yep. a grandma somewhere now. That's right. Like yeah. like Jennifer Beals. She's probably, <laughs> she's probably knitting in a rocking chair. Somewhere. That's right. You know, it's crazy. Me too. Well, yeah, but you're a different story. Yeah. You've been doing that since you were 20. <laughs> well, let's Absolutely. just get into it. This is uh, the big day, Friday, end of the week. People are running home. So um, we'll give them something to run from. So I've right. got an author today. And he is big seller. He's 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 done uh, what over ninety books, and uh, sold over a million. So he's he's up there in your league, there, Dave. Oh yeah. Uh, so, Mister Robert <laughs> J. Crane, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, I appreciate you having me on, Al. Dave. Well, Robert, um, you've done a lot in this 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 writing world. Um, d- did you always know you were going to be a writer from the get go? from age of four type thing, or did it happen late? It's funny you say that. Yes, I, I did know early, but it's one of those uh, stories where there's a lot of uh, sidetracking along the way. So uh, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer fairly early. I completed my first uh, book, quote-unquote, in like fourth grade. Um, and everyone's praising, oh, it's so great. I can't believe you actually wrote a book in fourth grade. This is amazing. Uh, it's five pages. Uh, my talent for art has diminished in the years since. It's not kept up with the, um, the, the talent of the people my age. So now I, I, my, my skill is exactly the same level as it was when I was 10. Perfect. But I, <laughs> I went to college and got a degree in English uh, on the creative writing track thinking, yeah, I would love to be an author. And when I got out of college, the, the professors in the few creative writing courses I took were very frank about it. You know, the path to publication involved at the time getting an agent, uh, querying uh, publishers to find one that will like your book. And then you're going to publish about one book a year and probably 95% of authors aren't going to make a living at it. So this is going to be a hobby thing for you. You probably need to go get a master's and teach English if you want to do this. And so I was very discouraged by that. It didn't seem like a particularly viable career path. And so I, I put it aside and went in, into the financial services industry to try and, and find a way to make money. And then after about 10 years of beating my head against the wall, dealing with mortgages, investments, and uh, um, insurance, I finally reached the point where, you know, maybe actually writing books, I should probably get back to that because this, this other thing is not working out for my sanity or really at all financially, because it was right at the time of the financial crisis. So no one really wanted to talk about mortgages or investments for some reason. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so what made you go? I asked this because I think it's a tough career choice to be uh, doing any type of work 
and then to decide to go into writing because it's it's like you say it's not an easy thing even today there's a lot of self-publishing and you still have to do a lot of promoting and marketing and there's if anything self-publishing there's like a thousand titles every day that you're competing against so you're overwhelmed so uh, is there something that actually lit the fire to make you okay i'm going to write a book i'm going to find an agent i'm going to publish this thing was there something that you know drove you to that well i i i did i had an idea in my head that i just simply could not get rid of um it was the concept that became the sanctuary series that i i wrote um and i would go to work in the morning in financial services and i'd be thinking about story ideas as i was doing the you know the sales calls that i had to do and and whatnot and i just could not stop thinking about this. And I started writing it in my spare time in the evenings, just, you know, a chapter at a time, whatever. Um, and pretty soon I was spending just hours and hours uh, on my evenings and weekends writing. And so I started looking into, oh, how do you become a professional author, a published author? And I, I was very discouraged by the traditional route, the, the querying, the, you know, the, the publishers, because I had an idea and it was, a, it was an epic fantasy series. I just finished writing the 12th book in that series, it's coming out in June. Um, and I just didn't think that, in general, I'd have a lot of luck selling a publisher on this particular concept over the course of 12 books. And, you know, I'd get one book out or something, and they might cancel the series, which does happen sometimes, and I'd, I'd be out of luck. And so when I looked, I did discover that in self-publishing, there's a lot of, like you said, stuff that you have to do and to promote yourself. Um, but it gave me the freedom to be able to hold a series through until I felt like I'd finished telling the story I wanted to tell. And so I decided to go that route. I looked into what the people who are actually having success at self-publishing were doing. Uh, and I followed that path and it worked out really marvelous for marvelously for me. I think actually we're at over three and a half million books sold at this point. Yeah. You sleep with a lot of people. You get there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They fall asleep reading my books. It's not the unfortunately, because I think I would be dead by now. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, I mean, it, it worked out really well for me. I, I, dispositionally, I do a lot better with the self-publishing side of things because I, I, I've done a few public events here and there on my own dime as an indie author, but interfacing with the public doing a book tour or something like that is, is not what my ex, uh, my introvert heart wants to do. Instead, sitting myself in a chair and writing for six hours a day, five or six days a week is, is definitely more up my alley. Well, well how, do, how does one do this then? Like, because um, it, what's the secret to, to being successful in self-publishing to, to the extent you are? I had a very fortunate start early on. I was able to, they, Amazon used to have a, uh, the ability to set your books free permanently. And you could, so I, I, I write fairly long series by disposition. Uh, my upcoming release in May here, Shadows, it's book 54 in a series. And I was only eight or 10 books deep in the series when I, when I started having success. But what I did is I set the first three books free. Um, and I said, Hey, try my writing. I know you've never heard of me. Give this a shot. Read the first book or three books. If you like it, here you go. You can keep reading more. And at that point you'll be paying me. But up to then it's just, it's a free sample. It's a lost leader or, you know, this, the samples in Costco as you walk down the aisle. Right. And it worked marvelously. I, I hooked people into my writing, made lifelong fans out of them. And, uh, 
Uh, so many of them have been around from the beginning. So that, that was what I did at the time. Nowadays, it's, uh, you know, a little more complicated. You, you still have to adopt the basic precept, though, which is you need to get people to want to try your writing one way or another. I suggest hostage situations. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you think output itself, uh, putting out all those books, is, is, has worked better for you than, than interactions with readers? Do you think that um, just creating a, a, a large volume of work uh, has, has led to your success? Well, as a certain 20th century monster said, quantity does have a quality all of its own. <laughs> um, and so, yes, I mean, there is a certain amount of, you know, bludgeoning the reader I can do by just flooding their inbox with 10,000 emails about how many different uh, books I've published. But, I mean, there, there has to be a certain level of enjoyment they derive from it, but absolutely, it does make it easier when you have uh I'm on my. I'm writing my 99th book right now. It's easier for me to have 99 books to sell to people in 10 different series, rather than if you've got one author who has two or three books out there, and then they have to continuously flog those two or three books uh, in order to, you know, establish the the number of sales that they would need in order to make a living on a yearly basis. Well, I, I noticed you're quite the series series writer, and when when you do that, like. Like you were saying, you know, book fifty-four, book book fifty-five. How does that all stay in your brain? Like so many, uh, you know, editions of the same sort of story, and quite often characters or theme uh, or world. I guess if you create a world, like where where does this? How does this happen? Uh, well, okay. So the the series that is my longest is called "The Girl in the Box." It deals with one main character. Um, who is, it's really, it's like um, a superhero movie with a thriller or mystery twist. And there's a lot of things you can do in the superhero genre in terms of genre bending that isn't necessarily available to an author. Like in my, my epic fantasy series, I only had so many epic fantasy stories in me before I had to kind of wrap that one up to a close because you can only push the bounds of one character so far in an epic fantasy situation. I mean, eventually, you know, they get tired of the epic battles. They, you know, they've fought their last fight. It's over. Whereas if you think about the Marvel universe as kind of an example, you've got one book or one movie that's guardians of the galaxy. And then on the other hand, you've got captain America, the winter soldier, which is a political thriller or a, um, you know, a thriller in general. And so having that kind of superhero template to work with, I can write a mystery one, book and then the next like the, the one that's coming out on the second may 2nd is um it's a spy thriller and so having that breadth of options available to me allows me to not get stuck writing the same kind of character in the same situation over and over again it allows me to really push her in some different directions but that said it won't go on forever. I'm probably in the last stretch of 10 to 20 books at this point I would say. We can only live in so many boxes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, with your series, um, how do you deal with continuity? You know, remembering continuity. Do you, do you use um, do you have tools? Do you have a process? Do you have a series bible? Uh, how do you do that so that uh, everything stays consistent throughout? Um, you know, fifty books. I have I have a pretty good memory to start with, so that is a key point for me. Although it's not as good as it was a few years ago, um, but I do have a series bible that's updated by my last stage proofer. Every time I finish writing a book, she updates it and then sends it back to me with the final revisions. Um, 
And then I have a series of advanced review readers that read it and let me know, hey, you might have messed up this. And if it's serious, I can fix it. It's rarely, most of the time, I, I pretty much catch it almost all the time by myself or with the help of one of my uh, editing steps. I have three different editors, I should say. I have an editor and then a, two levels of proofing after that before it even gets to the, the beta readers. And so in general, I'm able to keep the continuity pretty straight in my own head, either through my own memory or the um, series Bible. Although occasionally I did forget that there was one character a couple of books ago. I had to thank one of my fans because I was interacting with fans on social media. And I said, oh, yeah, I've got this character is going to come back and, you know, he's going to do something or another. And this one very voracious reader said, uh, you do remember that he's pretty evil. I'd like to see him get a bad end. And I thought about it. And I'm like, what? What happened with him? When did he go evil and cite <laughs> chapter and book? And I go back and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'd forgotten I had done this with this character. And so I adjusted the story accordingly, thanks to my reader, David Miller, managed to give this evil, evil character the proper send off instead of making him comic fodder and allowing him to continue living in the universe. Yeah, the worst thing in the world is to bring someone back to life that they're dead. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't dead. He no. was uh, he was a pretty bad guy, though, and I had let him let him get away with it. So, uh, well, so your characters like that, like they're really bad, um, mm -hmm. evil kind of people in this in these fantasy books. How do you kind of um, feel them or get them so that they they seem real, like people buy into these evil characters? And is it is it a, is it hard for you to write bad people? No, it's. It's scarily easily, which oh. should worry me more than it probably does. <laughs> so you live alone? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm married and have kids. But uh, when, when my first book in the series came out and the main villain was a serial killer, um, one of my wife's coworkers read it and asked her, you know, do you worry about him that he's able to write this kind of stuff? And she said, well, I didn't before, but now. Um, yeah, I mean, I've studied criminology quite a bit. I, I read criminology books for fun in my spare time. I read a lot of history. And so it's not very difficult to tap into the vast reservoir of terrible people and come up with the, you know, the common threads that bind them to humanity, the parts of ourselves that we really don't want to acknowledge. So I just try to just put their, their humanity in there one way or another so that the reader We'll hopefully not see too much of themselves in these characters, but I will say that, that one of the villains I created who was a serial killer, and I ended up eventually killing him, and um, readers to this day beg for me to bring him back from the dead because they like him so much, and I just I can't. I think I did too good a job because <laughs> he was appalling to me. I, I wanted him dead. I was sick of writing him. I guess a lot of bad, bad characters um, believe they're doing it for the right reason or they believe what they're doing is something that's good or there, there's definitely a reason. Do you sort of explain that with your characters or do you not write that type of bad character? They're just evil right through. No, I mean, I think in modern storytelling, you can't get away with the, this character is evil because they're evil. They have to have some sort of perspective that allows them self justification. But in a lot of these cases, I, I, I feel like we've kind of filed the edges off because a lot of these really bad characters are really bad people. They didn't necessarily think they were the good guy. 
they just thought in some sort of grand sense of story, it was that they thought they were right. Someone annoyed them. Someone wronged them. Someone gave them a grievance. And so, I mean, in some cases, villains can be villains because they're petty and mean and had, you know, some, some, some small things go wrong in their life that uh, they just held on to, let themselves get bitter. Um, and so however I go about it, whether it's a villain who's got plans to destroy the world or whether they're just planning a murder that they're hoping they can get away with, I mean, I just try and ground it in a feeling that the audience can can see, I guess, or can uh, empathize with would be probably the better way to put it. So are you real conscious of how you... Uh, display and write, let's say, your violence and even sex on the page? Um, I try to avoid, in most of my series, I do have one series where there is sex on the page quite a bit. Uh, uh, most of my others, it's fade to black. Um, but, I mean, in terms of violence, yes, there are, I, I have not tended to flinch from being extremely violent on the page. I guess that's a, a more American way of doing things. But um, there's no... Sex is terrible, but show someone slitting 18 throats. That's fine. No, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, that, that tends to be uh, the way I approach it. When, when you're doing this, like a fantasy book, uh, now for someone that's old like me, mm -hmm. how do you, as a successful fantasy writer, describe what it is that you're writing? Because someone like me, I lump in all of science fiction. All of that seems to be the same to me. Mm -hmm. And yet I get told, well, this is a fantasy, young adult. Fan you know, I get all these different terms. But to me, it's just all science fiction. They're traveling in time, and there's a weird world, and <laughs> evil monsters. I don't know. I just I, So how, how does someone, how do, how do you define fantasy? Well, I'm... I think there are so many categories that it does make it more difficult than in the days when, say, the only one thing ever, anyone knew was uh, uh, Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, for instance. Uh, it's it's experienced quite a renaissance since then. And, I mean, even when um, when you look at, say, Amazon's top 100 fantasy list, you're likely to find more of the what you call urban fantasy, the, the you know, magic in a modern world type stories, than you will the old words and sorcery um, a group of travelers banding together to fight a dragon in a, for in a strange, uh, you know, foreign land. Um, the way I typically would describe it to readers is I try to relate it. It's so painful to do it this way, but you only, you kind of have to relate it. You either have to have a, a hook that is instantly understandable, that they will uh, grab them immediately. That's probably the preferred way. Um, or you have to have some sort of way to relate it to what they've read in the past. You know, like I, I would typically... If I'm in a hurry, describe my epic fantasy series as Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones. It's not the most artful way to describe it, but in marketing terms, if you've got 50 words to work with, it, it gets the basic point across so that someone knows the genre. Um, they know it's maybe not as dark as Game of Thrones, but probably not as light as Lord of the Rings. And so, I mean, whereas, you know, Girl in the Box, I would say it is technically considered, um, contemporary fantasy or urban fantasy, but I would describe it as more like a superhero meets um, a thriller detective sort of tale. And so typically, yeah, I go with relational terms where I can explain to people, it's like this and this with a dash of this thrown in um, in order to, to just make it so that I don't have to build their, the description of the genre from, from the ground up because brevity is, I was going to say this whole wit, but it's such a cliche. It's still all the same to me, Lord of the Rings and Game of the Thrones. <laughs>
I, w- I, I wouldn't see them different. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a difference in tone, really. Uh, you know, Game of Thrones is a lot darker, uh, you know, a lot more po- uh, political in the sense of the grand sweep of evil machinations, machinations uh, of the people vying for the throne, whereas, you know, Lord of the Rings would be more driven by the nobility of man trying to to defeat the evil villain who is truly just evil rather than in Game of Thrones, the competing political interests where people come off evil because they're more self-serving. So I guess it's, it's really just a, a difference in worldview, uh, probably. But you, do you do see the difference though between, you know, contemporary fantasy where it takes, takes place in a modern world where it has some element of magic versus the medieval type worlds? Well, I can see the difference, but I don't really think they're different. Okay. If that makes sense. Like, I, I still put them in the same yeah. same category. Like, I still, if I feel like science fiction fantasy, as it's called now, it wouldn't matter to me one way or the other. If I feel like that, that's what I feel like. Yeah, I, I guess when uh, when you drill down or you get um, deep into the genres, like, I, I grew up really reading sci-fi but not reading fantasy. So if you gave me a book that had starship captains sweeping across the heavens... Uh, discovering new alien species and whatnot. I was all about that. But if you tried to give me a book where a bunch of wizards and warlocks and uh, swordsmen and knights were going to ride horses across the land to go defeat the evil dragon lord, less interested in that. That wasn't really my my genre. Right. But and that's the difference between sci-fi and fantasy. But they have a lot of fan overlap. And, you know, if it's not a genre that interests you, then, you know, why bother to categorize them that deeply? Well, how did uh, that brings the question to how did you get back into or get into epic fantasy as you were more into science fiction? I, I really played a lot of fantasy video games, even though I didn't read the fantasy genre. And then eventually I started to read the fantasy genre a little bit. And I discovered Tolkien. I read Lord of the Rings finally, and I really... I really loved that uh, in college, um, along with The Hobbit. Uh, and then I ended up discovering Brandon Sanderson, for instance, who is just a phenomenal, phenomenal writer and obviously the a legend at the top of the fantasy genre, as well as um, uh, Jim Butcher, who writes The Dresden Files. His, his series is just amazing. And I mean, those and my own experience, again, in video gaming really drew me to that um, that world because I, I was really, I really was more of a sci-fi or classic, you know, Clancy thrillers type reader before that. Geez, you know, I, my name should have been Butcher right in true crime. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good name exactly. for a, for a yeah. Crime yeah. I told myself I should have been Al Butcher. <laughs> <laughs> you could still be Al. I still can. Yeah. I'm yeah. Gonna, do it. I'm going to write this down. <laughs> With your with your epic fantasy, I was just wondering where um, where do your characters come from? Are you, are you drawing from mythology or tropes, or do you create your own to create your own unique outlook on on the fantasy genre? I definitely, I mean, you can't play in the genre without at least playing with the tropes. Um, so yeah. yeah, the main character for the majority of my epic fantasy series was the classic warrior archetype, but I just tried to take him in some different directions, give him some different flaws. He's, he's, he's definitely got the, the wrathful barbarian thing going for him. He's a man kind of out of place. Uh, he's more ambitious and less loyal at the outset than you would probably prefer in your typical fantasy hero. And so that's the, 
fun of it for me is to like take him through a character arc where he sheds that, uh, he builds that loyalty. He sheds that, um, that ambition that, uh, is not serving him so well. And so, um, yeah, you definitely have to, to at least acknowledge the tropes, um, and then go in the opposite direction of them or do something because there's just so much content in all of these genres nowadays that if you're, if you're not aware of what at least a, a baseline understanding of what has happened in the biggest names in the genre, you probably end up writing something that's a little too close to what other people have done in the past. Right. And, and, and don't get me wrong. There are some fans that, you know, just give me more of this forever. It, it, I don't think it's necessarily a, a winning strategy in the long term to not iterate and at least create something new if you're going to play in, in that genre. How do you describe your relationship with your characters then? Like, um, and I say that because uh, we get all sorts of answers from family, friends. Uh, they're, you know, they're talking to them all the time and all this stuff. Like, where, where is, where is it for you? Um, I am their butcher. Um, let's go back to <laughs> your chosen name. Uh, I have a, a bit of a reputation for uh, swinging the axe on them when, <laughs> at the slightest. At the slightest uh, uh, provocation, um, or when the story calls for it, uh, I I like my characters. Some of them I really love, but if the story tells me to go in a certain direction, they're unfortunately going to be sacrifices to uh, to the story. It's just the way it goes. Nothing personal. Look out for the family. No wonder she's worried. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what needs to happen, that's what's going to happen. That's a different kind of story. I'm not in control of that one. Oh yeah. Well, so when you um, when you do that, um, when you're working out these characters and stuff like that, are, are you drawing them from people that you know, or maybe someone you've run into? Maybe someone cut you off in traffic, or <laughs> someone butted in line at the grocery store, and you're and you kind of pick up their character a bit, and then you decide, okay, I'm going to make you suffer in this book. I cannot say I've ever done that, where I've just directly taken a character or someone I've run into and really just drop them into the story without alteration. I'll take a characteristic of someone. Uh, best example I can think of, actually, I was on a flight one time, and this is before you were allowed to keep your electronics going all the way into landing. There was this guy who, I mean, he was working on a laptop feverishly the entire flight, and then the the um, overhead announcement comes, you need to shut off your devices, we're below, about to enter below 10,000 feet, he fights it all the way up until the stewardess comes over and tells him, you have to shut this. He shuts it, and then he pulls out a tablet and works feverishly on the tablet, hidden. And finally, he gets caught doing that, and he has to put that away, and he pulls out his phone. I'm like, this is the most connection-addicted man I've ever encountered in my life. And so, I mean, that characteristic made the basis of a character. I'm thinking, like, what is he working on? What sinister thing could he be doing? And so I made that a a character in the open of one of my books. And so I typically, I would take that where it would be like, I saw this, this behavior, this attribute or something, and I would put it into a character, but then I'll, you know, the character I wrote didn't look anything like him. Um, if someone cuts me off in traffic, I typically forget them five seconds later. <laughs> <laughs> if I remembered, yes, I would schedule them for a terrible execution, but it would have to be kind of anonymously and, and I would, I, I never try to, I, I always try to take, if I see something, and meld multiple characteristics together, because the intention was never to, you know, 
just take life and throw it into the book. The idea is you want to put some creative work into it and, um, and make it fit for whatever you're doing, if that makes sense. Well, we've got the guy on the line, the other line here that uh, cut you off in traffic last week. (laughs) (laughs) Tell him I'm sorry. He's in the next book after this one. (laughs) Perfect. Speaking of this, do you you hear your characters? Do you have an inner monologue? I'm just trying to find out for your wife if you're hearing voices. (laughs) Um, I do not typically hear my characters. I don't talk for them. I'll typically give them an accent. And then I, it's sort of, I'll let it play out if I'm writing the dialogue. I'll, I got this advice from Tom Clancy at one point. He said, you need to say your dialogue out loud because if you say it and it doesn't sound like a line even you can deliver and you're writing it, then it's probably not uh, something someone would say. Um, I mangled right. that. That's not his actual quote. But, but the <laughs> spirit is the same in that you should probably speak your dialogue out loud in order to make sure it sounds somewhat reasonable. And so I do that and I'll, you know... I'll throw in a bit of an Irish accent and see if this one character talks in this particular way. And, and that's kind of how I'll field test it. But I don't, I don't hear them as really living people in my head. I'm forced to come up with their lines for them. And I'm keenly aware that it's me trying to think about it in terms of, well, this character has this terrible backstory. That's nothing like my upbringing. And so how would he think about this situation? And so, that's good. I mean, you know, you're not driving down the road listening to someone telling you what to do. Well, I, I am when I drive <laughs> with my wife. But other than that. <laughs> I will cut that. Go ahead. Go laugh. You've got a great sense of humor about this. Uh, so what comes first for you? Is it, is it the character? Is it the, is it the plot? Is it the setting, location? Like, how do you start out with one of these books? Typically, I, w- I write a more plot-driven series um and so i mean that doesn't mean that i don't want to focus on the character somewhat but uh you know the thriller and um and uh fantasy genre really does tend to at my end of the pool turn more on the plots and so i typically want the basic setup at least in mind of what is the character and the problem that they're going to face uh, in basic terms now sometimes that means the character is unformed in my mind, it's just a basic, oh, you know, this is the person, this is what they're struggling with, and then you should flesh them out from there. But the setting is typically the last thing that I will think about. I'm not as good as a lot of writers. I mean, there are some writers that, my gosh, you open their book, uh, you open Jim Butcher's Dresden Files, and Chicago just comes off the page at you. Or, or again, Sanderson, I mean, his worlds leap off the page. Um, I, I think mine are definitely more in the background and, and subordinated to the character and the problem that they're dealing with. Right. They drip off the page. So what do you um, hope people get out of your book? And, and I mean this in the sense that um, is there a subtext? Do you have meanings behind the entertainment, the, the, the thought in the book? Is there some sort of relevant subtext often but i mean i try and put it somewhat in the background every book has a theme uh, an argument in my head that i'm you know weighing should it be this way should it be that way and i'll have the characters ask the questions about that in fact my one of my proofers sent back um about my most recent release wow wouldn't it be great if there was a philosophical argument in the middle of this 
book. And I mean, he tagged it right at a place where I had just let them have a philosophical argument. So just pointing out to me, hey, your uh, your subtext is showing. And so I, I have all that in there. I'm not very fussed if they just want to read, if readers just catch the main plots. That's fine with me. That's how I operated for almost all my reading life until I took a theories of literature class and I started to realize there was some deeper stuff going on in, in most of the stuff I read. And so um, I put it in there, but you know, readers don't have to catch it in order to enjoy it. How do you think when you finish a book, I mean, you've got so many, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but when you finish a book, do you feel there's a slight change in how you write for the next book? Um, hmm. I noticed it a lot more in the first 20 books. I, Every single book at that point, I would focus on a different element of craft and really try and make this book the one where I uh, write excellent description or, and I probably went over the top on that particular book. You know, the next one I might focus on really hitting the plot beats uh, with maximum emotional effectiveness. And nowadays, I think it's pretty settled and the stuff I I think about is is more little tweaks here and there. Uh, there's definitely not as much of a step change as there was back when I was earlier in my career and and, and really focusing on a lot of the fundamentals as I wrote. So A little bit more natural now, I guess, at this point. Uh, probably a little too natural. I, I probably need to read a, a craft book and focus on something for a little bit in the next book or two I read. And I, I do still read craft books and from, from time to time, and I try to you know, make one a focus of a book, but it's a lot less often than it used to be. Right. Well, you're getting old. I am. Uh, <laughs> what makes a good book for you? Uh, as a reader or as a writer? As a reader. Like if you were, what, when you pick up a book and stuff, let's say yeah, whatever, just randomly pick up a book and you start reading it. Wh what is it that, that keeps you there? What's good? I'll give you a couple of examples. I read a couple of books this weekend, uh, one of which was the aforementioned Brandon Sanderson's uh, newest release, uh, Tress of the Emerald Isles. It had very imaginative world building. It had a protagonist that hooked me instantly. She's just this kind of sweetly naive and endearing character, and the arc of the character that she goes on is r really impressive. I mean, it was just very well done. Uh, another book I finished this last weekend was uh, the eighth book in Marco Cluz's Frontlines series, which is a military sci-fi book that I'm, I've been reading it for about uh, eight or ten years now, I guess. And it's about a uh, soldier in a far-flung war 150 years from now against aliens that are the size of buildings. And that was another one where I read the first book in the series, and it just gripped me from the first page. His descriptions were so-so, but the narrative voice in that one was what hooked me. Actually, the narrative voice in both of these descriptions was really tremendous, both Sanderson's and Clues' books. Clues' is this really familiar feeling you get. Clues had a background as a, a soldier in the German army, and so he had that air of authenticity where he's not been to war in space, but he's clearly done the work of being a grunt. And so it had that feel about it where it was just... This is something unique, it's different, and the narrative voice just hooked me and dragged me along. Whereas in Sanderson's case, he's telling it from the story of the, uh, the um, narrator. is uh, The story is about a girl who's going through a, an impressive quest, but the narrator is actually this ultra-powerful, world-striding being who's just sort of focused in on the story. And uh, again, the narrative voice is very... The character's name is Wit, the, of the narrator, and he really is a funny funny narrator, and, and it allowed Sanderson to do some stuff with this one that he doesn't typically do in his, you know, giant 
uh, bookstop or doorstop or uh, epic fantasies where the jokes are made right there in the dialogue and they just hook you and keep you going. And so for me, I love a good narrative voice. It doesn't have to be that sort of first person like those two are. I'm, I'm right now I'm reading a, a Chernow's Washington biography of, of uh, George Washington nonfiction. And that one hooked me too, because Chernow is just really confident in how he tells the story of Washington's life. So for me, I mean, the skill of the writer and the narrator uh, is is everything because the old saw about show don't tell. If you've got a really skilled narrator, they can tell you some things and you'll keep going. Whereas if you've got a really unskilled uh, writer, in a lot of cases, they can tell you and you're just going to want to bash your head against the wall because what they're telling you is not something you care to hear. With the world today and, and social media and all that stuff do you do you interact on on social media a lot do you have a website where do, where do people find you I, I do have a website uh, www.robertjcrane.com I used to be very active on social media um, around 2020 I started posting silly memes and Facebook moderation started banning me for 30 days at a time for them so uh <laughs> <sounds like> <laughs> It was for the dumbest things. I, I, had, I posted a meme about uh, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer that got flagged for COVID misinformation. It was a joke. Um, and then they, I guess, unbanned me and said it wasn't COVID misinformation. And then they hit me with a 30-day ban because it violated community standards. I, I didn't even republish it. They just republished it themselves. So, um, so I'm not as active on social media as I used to be. I, 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 you know, I keep an eye on it in case someone writes to me. But, yeah, definitely I'm more on my website or uh, – Behind the scenes, I can't, I, I can't do the full-on social media interaction anymore. Not, not an expect to write um, as many books as I do. Well, does that sort of thing um, affect you? Like, you know, stress and stuff. Like you're getting canceled on Facebook, or you know, the COVID sort of situation and all that. When things are stressful outside of your home, do you sort of does that affect your writing, or you can just write no matter what? I can pretty much write no matter what. I, I wasn't able to write as much during 2020 because my kids were home uh, for the first part of the year. But uh, And so I was trying to help them homeschool and Zoom class and all of that fun stuff. But um, it, I wasn't terribly stressed. I don't get terribly stressed about the events of the world because I have no control over the events of the world. And so if it's something that's in my control, I might stress out over it a little bit more. But in general... Um, it irritates my wife because she's like, how can you be so calm about whatever is going on at the moment? There's not a lot I can do about it, and I don't like to lose sleep. So <laughs> you get canceled tomorrow. What are you going to do? Uh, it'd be really hard to cancel me. I, I mean, I don't have a publisher that can fire me. Uh, I don't care what people think. I have a solid core of readers who seem to like my work, and so I'll just keep writing and if they want to cancel me, I'll just log off the Internet for a few days, and they can just, you know. The thing about cancellation nowadays is that it, if you have a publisher, you can get in real trouble. They can obviously drop you. As an indie author, I mean, Amazon can be capricious. I don't want to suggest they can't. They just canceled a friend of mine's account on Amazon, uh, his publishing account, because they said he violated copyright on a co-authored book that he wrote with someone else. Yeah, and so that kind of thing does happen. But typically, they don't take your books offline unless you are violating their terms of service in some way. And and he's working his way through that with them right now, and, and hopefully we'll get his account back. So I don't say it's impossible. I mean, but um, my typical strategy, if I say something that's you know going to tick people off, I'll just log off the Internet for a few days, go enjoy my life, uh, you know, sit out on the front lawn and sun myself where people – 
you know, who aren't very online don't know what's going on with my cancellation and talk to my neighbors and uh, come back in a few days when the Fuhrer has moved on to someone else. Well, it's probably not going to happen, but I just thought, did, did oh, you, it could happen. It could, but well, you know, most <laughs> of it, again, it's cancellation if you want it to be. Right. You, you know, I, I, unless you do something really, really nasty, there's, there's really not much you can, uh, you know, people cannot follow you for whatever reason, but right. it, it's not really that much of a change in your life. That's how I feel. I get, I get it all the time, so I don't really notice much difference. People take it too seriously. Oh, yeah, fair enough. I, I was going to say, back in the old days, they said, uh, you know, everyone gets their 15 minutes of fame. I feel like in the new world, everyone's going to get their 15 minutes in the barrel, which is the, the cancellation. <laughs> I've been trying. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still here. God, you know, what do I have to do? Well, so what's, so what's going on? What's next for you? I guess you probably got another dozen books coming out this year. Uh, I write somewhere between six and eight a year lately. I almost released 10 one year. Back when I was co-authoring, um, I was, I think uh, the best year I released 19 and I wrote nine of them myself and then 10 of them with my co-authors. But, um, I am much slowed down. I don't co-author anymore. It's just me and, uh, my editorial team cleaning up my mistakes, the, uh, the janitors of my literary career. So probably six to eight books this year. I'm 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 going to start a new series next. I, I've got to do something different. I just wrapped one up. I'm going to wrap up another series at the end of this year. And well, I've got one for you. How about the boy in the box? Well, you know, I, I think there's several <laughs> movies about that, and they're not appropriate for all audiences. <laughs> <laughs> How about the boy has a box? Mm. And now we're talking. See, I'm trying to get gambled here. <laughs> A worthy effort. Doesn't happen. Yeah, well. So, uh, well, fantastic. Now, of course, we'll have everything up on our website so people can find you and and your books and your your website and stuff, and it's been fascinating. Um, And we appreciate you being on the show. Well, I appreciate you uh, having me on, uh, Al and uh, Dave. Yeah. So we got Mr. Robert J. Crane, and his newest book, Look For Us, called Shadows. And it's The Girl in the Box, book 54. Again, thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is the introduction of something with media. I'll be back.